Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Mercy is the mark of a great man. Oh. Oh. Guess I'm just a good man. Oh. Well, I'm all right. You are not Captain Kirk. You do not belong in charge of the Enterprise and I shall do everything in my power against you. You know what the chain of command is? It's a chain I go get and beat you with till you understand who's in command here. Frequently appalled by the low regard you Earthmen have for life. to another exciting episode of SFP Now. I'm recording on a new mic, so I might sound a little bit different. And with me to go over the week's news and maybe talk about a few of the shows that have been starting up on the air is Reza. And now, last week in news. How you doing? I'm doing fine, thanks. I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad to see, glad to hear you're doing fine. It's been a little while since we've uh, done this. Well, I've, I'm, I'm acclimated now, so the move took a while, but I'm getting acclimated. Yep. It's, it's good. Yeah, it's, it's oh good. So, um, well, I'm going to start off with a little bit of news that's been going around for a few days, because I know you can't wait to talk about Doctor Who. <laughs> yes. So I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna do, do the very American thing here and talk about Star Trek. Uh, because uh, this this uh, basically happened towards the tail end of the week of last week. Um, Robert Orsi uh, revealed that there have been talks with CBS about a possible Star Trek series. Which I I read that and I'm frankly I've got mixed feelings about it because it'd be great to have a Star Trek back on TV, but. I'm not enamored enough of the alternate movie universe to actually want to watch that week to week. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's like I, I said in my article is um, if they do want to bring Star Trek back, I think they should bring it back with different producers and um, you know have it have a production company and production people that have absolutely nothing to do with J.J. Abrams or Robert Arce, or any of those people. Because those people, pretty much every show on television at the moment is is them behind it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Y50, it's Robert Arce and, um, and Damon Lindelof, and, you know, um, Sleepy Hollows, I think it's Damon Lindelof and Robert Arce, Roberto Arce, and pretty much every show. In, in, in their defense, there's, you know, there's nothing strange about that. I mean, back in the 70s and 80s, you had like three producers producing everything. You had Stephen J. Cannell. You had um, um, you had uh, yeah, you had Stephen J. Cannell, and you had um, the guy who did Night Rider, Glenn A. Larson, 
and you had, uh, what, what's his name, Belisarius, who did uh, Airwolf and a few of the others. It was like the three of them were doing all of the shows. I think, so, I, mean, I don't think Don Belisarius actually uh, started producing uh, Foggy until probably around, uh, probably around, um, around the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think, I think he apprenticed under the Nenang Arson because uh, Don Belisarius also worked on the original Battlestar Galactica. Oh, that's right. That's right. Okay. But it was, it was the three of them back then. So, you they, they go through cycles where they where they sort of you know clump together two or three producers who do everything, you know every few decades. So I mean, there's nothing new in that per se. But you're right, you know there are just a bunch of shows with those people. Yeah, and also I think that in order for a Star Trek series to work, it needs to have its own continuity and it needs to be separate of the uh, new movie universe. Yeah, and plus. Well, while the movies are fun as far as they go, and and the actors are enjoyable, God knows. Um, the new movies are fanfic. They're good fanfic, but they're fanfic. And I would like, you know, something that's closer to original Trek. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I've got to tell you, I wasn't too enamored with Star Trek Into Darkness, and I've seen it a few, a few more times since, and I'm even less enamored about it now than I was when I went to see it. Mm, yeah. Yeah. You know. the, only, the only thing I really want to see, just because it would be too meta to be passed up, would be if they got Patrick Stewart to play Anton Caridian for them in a reworking of the star, uh, of the uh, Shakespeare homage, Conscience of the King. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, 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 yeah. That, that'd be interesting. I, mean, I think Conscience of the King was a uh, was, uh, Quonos for Destroyer, wasn't it? Um, that was... Uh, um, see, uh, Codus the Executioner. Yeah, and he was running the Shakespearean theatre company. Yeah, yeah. It would be two la- two layers of meta at once, and mm. it would absolutely rock. But short of that, I really, you know, it's the overall universe doesn't thrill me. It's it's a it's a fun afternoon, but I don't rewatch these films. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, um, you know, before we go into war news, I, I didn't mention the interview uh, that we got on this this particular show. And this particular show got an interview. It's quite a long one. It's uh, a little shy of an hour. And it's with a it's it's with with a science fiction writer. He's an author and he's he's uh, turning his hand to uh, producing as well. And he's called um, Robert Wood. Um, he's no he's no relation to the guy that did Stargate. So, <laughs> so, but ba- basically, he wrote a book about space nineteen ninety nine, which was pretty big a few years ago. It was kind of like the unofficial guide to space nineteen ninety nine. And he's now involved with um, an organisation called the uh, Space Opera Society, who are, you know, they're kind of like an independent production company, and uh, that they're, they're sort of like um, they're working on um, a sequel to Space 1999, um, as well as um, a handful of other projects. And that they they basically got an Indiegogo campaign going, and they're kind of looking for people to uh, invest in them to produce um, space operas because no one's doing it at the moment. Mm. Also. And he's a really cool guy. It was a pretty cool, 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 cool opportunity to interview him. It sounds, it sounds interesting. It, it is. It's, it's, um, it's, it's quite, quite, a, quite a long interview, but we, we do get sidetracked by talking about a few science fiction shows along the way. So, <laughs> um, so, so it, it, was, it was a fun interview. I just thought I'd mention that because I normally mention that at the top of the show, but I'm not too organised today because it's midnight here. So, <laughs> um, so... Um, I, I thought I'd quickly mention that, and um, I know that you're rather anxious to talk about uh, some Doctor Who news. Oh yes, um, 
recently, uh, some of the classic episodes that were thought lost were rediscovered on old tapes that had been shipped to Africa for syndication on Africa channels back in the day. Mm-hmm. And so they, they have re- rediscovered two classic do- um, second Doctor stories. One was Enemy of the World, which they just discovered in its entirety. And the other was Web of Fear, which is notable for the great intelligence, the Yetis, and for being the, the Brigadier's introduction, because mm-hmm. he's, the, he's the, the Colonel Lethbridge Stewart instead of the Brigadier, and it's his introduction episode. Mm-hmm. And they discovered all of that except for episode three, which they put together, apparently you said, with um, still photos. Yeah, they, they put it together with uh, 30, I think, I think it says in the article, 35 still photos. Um, I've been watching. I've actually been watching uh, uh, Web of Fear because um, I, I downloaded it and I watched episode three last night, and um, it's kind of disappointing given that the the rest of it's actually uh, been been found <laughs> that you got that mm-hmm. episode that's in photos. So yeah, you know, it's it's too bad they couldn't have held back on releasing that one and maybe done something like they've done with the other dots who's about by doing a you know an animation. Yeah, yeah, the, the animations were. Um, very good. I um I had uh, a couple months ago I had watched a a gorilla fan reconstruction of the episode with 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 animation on YouTube. So it's going to be interesting to actually see it most of it with the actual footage. Um, I'm, I'm, I did the exact opposite of you. I've actually watched uh, Enemy Enemy of the World, and I'm going to be watching uh, Web of Fear tonight. Enemy of the World is interesting in that it is a dual role for Patrick Troughton, and it really it really demonstrates how underrated the Doctor Who actors tend to be because Troughton can act. Oh, we've always known Troughton could act because so like um, after Doctor Who, he had he, he made a hell of a lot. Of- different character roles I mean he he played he played the priest if you remember in the Omen films oh that's right um, I, I remember him most vividly apart from Doctor Who from uh, the six wives of Henry VIII and he was also in a children's drama that was pretty big in the late 80s it was a um, it was kind of like a six-part children's drama based on a book uh, called the, the Box of the Nights, and he played the he played the an, an older bloke in that mm, um, okay and, okay um, but it's, it was it was it was it was a bog standard um, second Doctor Who story. It, it involved um, a dictator, also played by Patrick Troughton. It was quite quite interesting. It's like uh, he played the Doctor and the, the kind of guy that the Doctor always goes up against in, in a dual role, um, complete with an accent for the second role. It was, it was sort of like uh, it was sort of like the Star Trek Mirror Mirror Universe with everything but the goatee. He did it really really well. And it uh, it was a uh, it was a it was standard Doctor Who Cold War era you know commentary on fascism and you know this the sort of stuff that you usually get with those with those episodes. But it was it was a performance showcase for him, and it was really quite well done. And uh, and I, I quite I actually actually ended up enjoying it more than I thought I would because I realized as I was watching it why the second Doctor isn't my favorite Doctor. It's not because of Trout. He's actually excellent. And his chemistry with the various companions is excellent. It's that I didn't like the type of stories they did during his era. Mm, I don't I mean I kind I kind of liked uh, you know um, I liked Invasion. That was that was good. That was good. Um, um, and um, I'm quite enjoying Web of Fear thus far. 
that one was good, but they, they had some other ones where they, they laid the social commentary on pretty thick, even by 60s and 70s standards, and I just, you know, just didn't take to it. Uh, I, don't, I don't like being hit over the head with narrative obviousness, you know. So, those, so the, some of those stories just, you know, didn't sit well with me. But the performance level stuff is really, really cool, and, and I'm really looking forward to Web of Fear tonight, because of, of the two, that's, in, in terms of the narrative, going to be more my cup of tea. Plus, the Brigadier! Who I miss dreadfully. I can't even begin to tell you. Yeah, there's actually a Doctor Who convention on um, in Manchester uh, next month, and I'm thinking of going along to it. I don't think I'll be able to get any interviews there because it's a bit short notice. Mm, like Plus, yeah. uh, my my recording stuff that I used last year, um, my portable recorders recording stuff's kind of like um, going out on me, as in it's broke beyond repair. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's too it's kind of a um, you know 150 pound to replace that right now. It's just so like uh, money I haven't got. So I'm thinking of going along to enjoy it anyway because it's gonna have screenings there. Uh, Coggin Baker's gonna be there along with Sophie Aldred and um, and and the the big blue guy out of the out of the recent Dot Two stories. Forget get the name of the actor, but he played the big blue guy. Oh yes, yes. Uh, um... I'm I'm blanking on the actor and the character's name, but I know exactly who you're talking about. Well, he, he's going to be there. Um, and yeah. those, are, those are the three big guests, um, and they've got a few Star Wars people there as well. So it's Doctor Who and Star Wars convention. It's going to be on the 17th of November in Manchester cool. uh, City Centre. So I'm thinking of going there. Uh, yeah, going you'll, you'll, you'll have fun, even if even if you don't get any interviews. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there, there is that. Um, Another story you're thinking about is Once Upon a Time, and I've got something right here which I'm going to be reviewing on the website in the next couple of days. Um, it's a big, thick book. Um, it's Once Upon a Time Behind the Magic, Companion to the Hit TV Seal, and it's. Um, oh, hang on, cat. My cat's joining us on the desktop here. Oh, that's not sound. Okay, hello, cat. <laughs> And it's um, it, it's basically it's a big thick book, um, and it's basically um, packed with interviews with the stars of the series as well as a complete episode guide for the first two seasons. Yes, yes, it's it's uh, for it's it's great for um, if you need quick reference. It's basically what they did was they smashed together um, two special edition magazines in one hardback. It's a paperback. It's not hardback. Oh, okay. Um, but um, it's um, it was sent me the other day, and I'm 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 supposed to be reviewing it. I've just not got around to it yet. Mm. Yeah, you'll you'll appreciate it because it, it'll um it'll be good reference for you for even if you don't uh, pick up the series itself, it'll at least give you a, a reference source for when we're discussing it. Mm-hmm. And um, and while we are discussing it, um, uh, I watched Once Upon a Time in Wonderland, the pilot. It was a pilot, but it was a promising pilot, and I'll certainly pick up with it. Um, lots of British and Australians in the cast. We've got Naveen Andrews as Jafar. He's going to own it. He's going to absolutely own it. You've got Michael Soka, who uh, fans know as um, the Tom werewolf the Werewolf. From being human. From being human. And I hope that they really give him some material to show off his range, because he really showed range as Tom and being human. So I'm really hoping they give him some material. The interesting thing is that they got an actor called Sean McGuire to play Robin Hood on on Once Upon a Time, the main series. But it turns out that Robin Hood is going to be tied into 
Michael Sokka's character's backstory. Cool. Yes. It turns it turns out that uh, Michael Sokka's knave it was is actually Will Scarlet, formerly one of Robin Hood's merry men. Yeah. Well, you know, so. Sean McGuire's been around for ages. Um, he's, mm-hmm. he's done the soaps here in the UK. I think he even had a. I think he even had a brief pop career as well. Yes, I, I read he did. Yeah. So, uh, he, he wasn't very good, mind you, but he was a brief pop career. Uh, yeah. he's been, he's... Actually, the, the role of Robin Hood was recast. They originally had uh, Tom Ellis, and but uh, Tom Ellis couldn't come back for a recurring gig. So after his initial appearance, they recast it for Tom McGuire, I mean, uh, Sean McGuire. And so that should be interesting, but they they look they look to be really trying to do some things with Robin Hood. So yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing what they do with him over the course of the two shows. Yeah, I think Sean McGuire is probably a better choice as well as him. He's more eye candy for the young for the young girls that are watching. Mm, probably, probably. Um, and, and you know, so like Tom Ellis, um, I've not really seen him in that much. So, but my, Michael Solskjaer, yeah, and so like um, he did, he did show a lot of range in being human. He also had probably the toughest job as well because he yes. was direct replacement for um, Russell Tovey. Um, yeah, he's he's still going round, st- still doing the drowns. Is Russell Tovey? He's a he's got a, got a fairly successful sitcom at the moment here in the UK. Mm. But it's late night sitcom. Yeah, mm. so it's, um, yeah. But he's still he's still around, do, you know, treading the boards and and whatnot. Um, yeah. But yeah. Michael Soker was definitely had the um, the most interesting role of that second three of the second three characters, mm-hmm. and uh, saying he should he should be able to do some really interesting things with the spinoff. Yeah. So once upon a time spinoff, huh? Yeah. yeah. The, the one problem with it, and this is this is ABC, they're having promotional problems over there. It's it's a long story, too long for our current format, but they're having they're having organizational problems over there, and. One of the problems is that they've put Once Upon a Time in Wonderland in a bad time slot. It only got it got it got very it got very 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 soft ratings. Now, fortunately, this first season was designed to be self-contained, so that if we don't get an additional season, we'll still be able to finish out the storyline that's set up in the pilot. But I but I think the problem is ABC's really shot themselves in the foot because originally they planned to put uh, Once Upon a Time in Wonderland on during the hiatus between the first batch of 11 Once Upon a Time episodes and the second batch of 11 Once Upon a Time episodes so that they had uh, so that they had a, a way to fill all their slots. But at the last minute, they moved it and decided to give it its own slot uh, and because they didn't have enough things to fill various slots with, which is general commentary on ABC. And because so of that, also, um, I should imagine it's also to do with Agents of Shield taking up so much of their overall budget as well. Oh God, yeah. Um, and Agents of Shield is a separate conversation, which I'm not going to have now because I can't have too much time. But um, the, the ABC has has eaten up so much of their budget on Agents of Shield that a lot of their other shows are kind of uh, being short shrifted in the in the PR department. And once upon uh, once upon a time in Wonderland has been put in a time slot that does not benefit it. Now, would they get better ratings if they were in a, a, a different time slot? I don't know, but they would certainly get better ratings than than this because they're because they're in the they're in the the low ones. You know, they're they're in CW ratings territory. Oh dear. Yeah. Not good. 
it's really bad because they're, they're opposite being they're opposite big bang theory on thursdays oh that's like, definitely not it's, good it's like suicide i mean they might as well just shoot themselves in the head and I, 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 I've got no sympathy for ABC. They did it to themselves. They literally yeah. did it. To themselves. I, I, I tell you something now. Um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not. You know, I don't really watch Once Upon a Time anyway. Or you know. If there was nothing on on a Sunday night and I was doing nothing, I'd probably watch once upon a time. Yes. If you know what I mean. Or you know, if if they if they're showing on the first night, which they 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 seemingly are when Big Bang Theory is on, it is Thursday, right? Yeah, it's Thursday. Yeah, because they show Big Bang Theory here on the Thursday night as well. Um, I'd rather watch Big Bang Theory, but that's yeah. just me. I like Big Bang Theory. I think it's a fantastic show. <laughs> Yeah, I like I said, ABC did this to themselves, and they've got no one to blame, and I've got no sympathy. Mm-hmm. If 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 the show tanks and they only get one full season out of it, they've got no one else to blame mm-hmm. because they had other options and didn't avail themselves of it. Well, them. Another another interesting news story that we picked up on this afternoon, and um, I've been sat on this whole weekend, is um, NBC have picked up two new time travel dramas. One's from the uh, pen of jo- Josh Friedman, who wrote Friedman, who wrote the uh, Terminator Sarah Jane, uh, Sarah, Sarah Connor Chronicles. <laughs> but the the other one, interestingly enough, is from the pen of Deborah Pratt, who was an executive producer on another very well known uh, time travel series, Quantum Leap. Mm. And um, it, you know, so like it, it looks like we're gonna have some time travel TV shows uh, coming back. Yes, but knowing knowing networks and the way they function, if they if they uh, if they've got two of them in the hopper, it probably means they'll only greenlight one of them. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to see which one of them we get. We're well, not gonna get both. Oh, they might do an amalgamation of the of the of the of those two. True, true. If they can, if they can negotiate. Because you know, reading here between the lines, the one that sounds the most developed is one that Deborah Pratt's bringing to the table. Yeah. Although I don't, that makes, I don't that like, makes sense. Although I don't like the sound of it because it sounds a, a little bit like a so like science fiction romance type thing, and mm, you know, it does. I, I'd rather shoot myself in the head than watch something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's um, it, it's just I just thought it was interesting to note because uh, there's not really been a significant time travel drama since Quantum Leap. No, there no hasn't done been. One. Um, and another show um, I wanted to touch on is um, Atlantis will be coming to BBC America on the 23rd of November, same day as Doctor Who. Yeah, basically the um, the day of the Doctor will air here because of the staggered time timing to make sure it airs the same day. It will be air here at 2 p.m. Eastern. And then later that night in the regular Sci-Fi Saturday slot, Atlantis will debut, mm-hmm. and I'm looking forward to both. I've 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 wanted uh, I've wanted a follow-up series to Merlin, with you know with that tone and you know different source material since I I heard about it and this this sounds like they're they're really trying to do some stuff. So it's a little bit darker than Merlin. Mm. Is Atlantis? It starts out a little bit darker than Merlin, uh, and um, I, I'll tell you this now: it's so like it takes full advantage of the uh, of the story behind. Jason and the Golden Fleece. Ah, that'll um, be fun then. Because, like, uh, if you remember in the story Jason and the Golden Fleece, we're introduced to him. He's washed up on a beach somewhere with one shoe. Yes. And, you know, he's no idea where he's from. We've no idea where he's from. He's just been placed there by Zeus. Mm. Um, well, in this one, you're getting a bit of a backstory to him. That's cool. Um, and I'm doing my best not spoiling it for you, but I've seen, I've seen, I've seen the first episode before 
It was aired on the UK television. Um, I could have seen the um, other two before, but I didn't didn't really bother chasing up. Mm. Um, but you know, I've not seen episode three yet. But Mark Addy is superb in it. Uh, that's that's what I I read your reviews, and I'm looking forward to that. That should be that should be fun. Um, and it makes it makes sense that uh, that Atlantis is darker than Merlin because these are the Greco-Roman myths we're talking about. So even with adaptation, you know, this those stories were pretty freaking dark. Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting to see, especially with Medusa, because um, there are actually two versions of Medusa. If they're going with any version of any variation of the second version, uh, it involved uh, being cursed uh, because she, in the original story, Medusa ends up um, making out with one of the gods, I think it was Poseidon, in Aphrodite's temple because she was a priestess of Aphrodite and she actually ends up making out with Poseidon uh, in the temple, which is a massive faux pas. You don't do that even if you're, you know, even if you're coupling up with the, one of the gods. And uh, Aphrodite completely freaks out and, uh, and just massively annoyed by the sacrilege and, and by the fact that Medusa is regarded by some as, as prettier than she is. And she lashes out by turning Medusa into a Gorgon. Mm-hmm. So if they're going with any variation of that of that version of her storyline, um, it should be fun. Well, at the tail end of episode two, um, you know the um, the priestess put a curse on her. Cool. Then they're going mm-hmm. they're going for option B because option A is that she was born a Gorgon, uh, one of three sisters. It's, it's the less, in, less interesting version. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be um, it's going to be an interesting show. I I've enjoyed the first two episodes. Uh, the first episode was quite heavy with exposition, but they still found a bit of time for action adventure. Uh, cool. The second episode also was quite heavily heavy with the exposition because uh, they were introducing Medusa. Mm. It's um, it, it's generally um, it's generally a pretty good show. There has been some criticism of uh, the dialogue that's written for Jason within the first two episodes, uh, given where where he's come from, sort mm. of thing. But you know, I, I personally think you know that that's just going to get better as it, as the show goes on. You know, we got to give got to give it time. Merlin, it took Merlin about a year, maybe two years, to take off properly. Yeah, the scary thing about that is that shows like Merlin and Atlantis would only be given time because they're British shows. You realize that either of them had been on an American network, even an American cable network. If they hadn't shown promise within that first year, they would have been axed. So it's only because of the fact that they're British shows that they're being nurtured at all. Well, it might, you know, it might not be the same case for uh, Atlantis because um, because of the time slots given. It's up against Death's Factor every week. Oh God. That's um, not good. But the, the, there's a good reason behind that. It's basically because it's uh, it's a dark show and I can't really justify showing it at 7 p.m. Ah, uh, um, okay. But yeah. I, 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 you know, it's, it held its own in the first week. It, it did about 5.6 million viewers, so it's comparative with what Doctor Who's doing mm. um, in the overnights. And um, obviously, you know, not everyone's watching these shows live anyway now. They're using uh, BBC iPlayer and stuff like that and other services. So yeah, I, yeah. I've got a feeling it's, it, it, you know, it might be around for another year, it might not be, but, you know, I'm hoping it is around for another year. Yeah, or failing that, that they at least finish out enough of the storylines that you feel like you're justified spending the single year you get. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's, it's a pretty good show, and I think I think you'll probably enjoy it. Um, yeah, it's, it's far far superior to uh, uh, to Simbad. 
push. Yeah, I I only liked pieces of Sinbad. Uh, it wasn't anywhere near as good as it could have been. That said, I enjoyed watching it because I never watched Lost and I don't intend to. But Sinbad was useful in that it gave us um, Naveen Andrews in a role that, because I didn't watch Lost, I kind of regarded as his unofficial audition for Once Upon a Time, because his character of Lord Akbari kind of felt like Jafar. Mm-hmm. And so if, you, if you've watched Sinbad, you kind of get the ballpark that he's in as Jafar, just add magic. You know, and, and, and that's what we got. Naveen Andrews was actually one of the best things about Lost. He was like one of the best actors on that show, and he had the most intriguing character as well mm. on that series. You know, he played basically, a, he played a former member of the Republican Guard. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, he's a former, you know, Afghan soldier. And, you know, so like he was just um, a really, you know, he had a really interesting storyline. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, his character seemed to be searching for, you know, some some kind of redemption. Yeah, yeah. And he's, he's between Sinbad and what I've seen so far on, on Once in Wonderland, um, it, it looks like he's going to end up stealing the show the way that Robert Carlyle steals the main show as Rumpelstiltskin. Mm-hmm, yep. It's going to be the Jafar show, but that's Okay. Okay. Well, I think I think um, it's about time to wrap up. Unless you anything else you want to want to add? No, I think we've covered about everything I can think of. Okay. Well, now it's time for the um, show's main interview with uh, Robert Wood, um, who's going to talk to us about the space opera society. Okay. Engine stop. We copy it down. Remember when science fiction drama envisioned stories that were happening where no one had gone before? discovering and exploring other worlds far, far away. While many of these series and films became cult classics, somewhere along the way, this genre got lost. Imagine if there was a place where you could go watch exciting new space opera series made specifically for the niche audience that you are. Imagine if this place was conducted by a team as passionate as you about science fiction and who would use all their background experience to make sure you get the best entertainment possible. SOS is a not-for-profit independent production facility that brings together writers, special effects wizards, and other creative talent from around the world who've worked on some of the most recognizable and respected science fiction franchises. So throw away your remote control and get real control by joining the Space Opera Society right now. With as little as $1, you can change the future of entertainment today. For more information, please visit our website. Which is, of course, spaceoperasociety.com. Where all your questions will be answered in our frequently asked questions page. And don't miss our short video presentation from some of our space opera series in development. And I'll step off the limit. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And then welcome to the show, um, Robert E. Wood, um, the um, um, acclaimed writer of Destination Moonbase Alpha, the unofficial and unauthorized guide to space 1999, and um, also one of the founding people behind the uh, the brand new uh, Space Opera Society. Uh, so how are you doing, Robert? I'm great, Ian. Thank you for having me on your show. Oh, you're welcome. So, like, um, I got your email um, about the uh, Space Opera Society, and uh, I, I've actually done a little bit of digging and a uh, bit of research, watched a couple of videos on uh, on YouTube, um, checked out the Indiegogo page, and um, 
you know, it's it's it's, it's very interesting, you know, to, to see. And um, you know, I, I I'm a big fan of uh, space operas. Um, I wasn't a big fan of Ron Moore's Battlestar Galactica, but that's another story. <laughs> neither neither am I. We can talk about that. <laughs> uh, uh, well, for me, it was just too dark. You know, being great. Like it, I agree. Know, I, it it's an exercise in making people incredibly unlikable. Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to song like uh, slit your wrists. Yeah, I watched all of it. I actually made an effort to watch all of it because when I was criticising, when I criticised something, um, I wanted it to be coming from an authoritative standpoint. Right. You know? Um, yes. And it was just, um, I just found uh, I found Starbuck a very unlikable character. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I just I just didn't really like the show overall. It just no, I, yeah, I agree. I didn't either. Uh, but there's a, you know, there's a lot of fantastic sci-fi shows over the years, over the decades that, of course, I've loved and, and, and you've loved, um, starting with, you know, probably the, the classic Star Trek from the late 60s, mm-hmm. Space 1999, and the original Battlestar Galactica in the 70s. And uh, then moving on, you know, more recent shows like Farscape and Firefly have been, I think, really, really good examples of the genre of, of uh, space opera, you know, outer space science fiction shows. Yeah, and we've got, you know, we've also got the, um, let's see, um, we've, got, we've got the Star Trek spin-off shows, but we've already mentioned Star Trek, so we'll just count that as one choice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But I remember, you know, there's some shows back in the 70s that I remember that, you know, didn't quite make the grade, got cancelled after a season. Uh, one such show being Logan's Run. Which... I liked, uh, yeah, I liked Logan's Run. I think they did some interesting things with some of the stories. Um, you know, it, it was a product of its time, and, and it didn't really have a huge chance. I think also the TV series of Planet of the Apes was actually quite good as well. It had some good characterizations and some good storylines, um, some good script writers as well. I know a couple of people that would probably disagree with you about that. Planet of the Apes. I think there's a lot of people who disagree with both of us about our assessment of the new Battlestar Galactica, so to each, to each their own. Mm, well, you know, I'd actually argue that, um, you know, so more people actually watched the original Battlestar Galactica and never did watch the remake, so... Oh, a lot. I mean, I think the original uh, premiere of Galactica in 1979, uh, I think it had about 50 million, 50 or 60 million viewers worldwide who tuned into that show. You know, and the new series, I don't know what it peaked at, but I mean, you know, a lot of the time they had a little over a million viewers. It was, you know, really paltry ratings compared to what the original had. Uh, And that's partly a product of the fragmented kind of TV universe that we are in now, where there's so many different channels that they didn't used to have. But still remains that, you know, a a tiny fragment of people are uh, watched the new series versus the original series. Yeah, I mean, you know, but with the uh, with the Planet of the Apes thing, uh, the TV series, I've, I've got on I've got on DVD in its entirety. Yes. Um, basically because a couple of years ago, um, well, about 18 months ago, I did a Planet of the Apes special um, for, for for the podcast um, with uh, right. Gabriel Hardman. He was, he, was a comic book, he was a comic book writer, and I think he also works in the film industry as well. Right. And he, he was doing, the, he was doing um, a comic book series, which is kind of like a, a prequel to the Planet of the Apes movie. Mm-hmm. And movie, movie series, and it just finished, and... Uh, well, one of the things that he, you know, he hit on was the fact that I didn't really, you know, particularly enjoy the TV series um, because he felt the writing wasn't really up to par in comparison to the first first couple of movies. Right, right. Yeah. Well, 
It was a different. It was a different creature, um, and maybe maybe the scriptwriters weren't. I think was it Logan's run that had uh, DC Fontana as one of the writers. I, I think she did do a, do do a, do a story on it as well. And uh... some of Logan's run series, um, the the Planet of the Apes series. Um, one of the writers that I remember from that is called Art Wallace. Who um, who also did a treatment, or well, it was more than a treatment. It was a, it was a draft script uh, for Space Nineteen Ninety Nine, um, which was uh, called the Siren Planet, and then it was changed by Johnny Byrne into the second episode of, of uh, Year One of Space Nineteen Ninety Nine, uh, a matter of life and death. Uh, so Art Wallace um, kind of has a connection there, which, which makes me remember him. And uh, yeah, I'm not sure that his episodes of Planet of the Apes were fantastic or not. I, I would have to watch them again. But um, uh, I seem to remember enjoying it anyway. Yeah, I mean, the one thing I remember about the TV series of Planet of the Apes is it kind of gave the Grinners a lot more uh, a lot more emotional depth with, 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 with you know, which, which was thanks, thanks to Mark Leonard a lot, a lot of the time, because in the movies, the Gringers were kind of one-dimensional, mm-hmm. and, in, and in the TV series, they kind of like made them, made them a little bit, they fleshed them out a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, of course, they had the opportunity to do that in, in um, an ongoing weekly series, you know, as opposed to just a single movie script every couple of years. Uh, the, the TV series just gave them more scope for doing that, which is, you know, part of the, the, the great thing about doing a series of a television series science fiction uh, space opera series you have that opportunity to explore your situation uh, on an ongoing basis and explore your characters on an ongoing basis and learn more about them and who they are uh, and I think that that's just an interesting journey for, for viewers you know once you start to you know you maybe get into it you like the premise you like the actor you like you know something about it and then you kind of get into it more and, and explore that universe and learn more about who the people are mm-hmm. Well, one of the shows we neglected to mention um, was Babylon Five. You know, which <laughs> I never watched, <laughs> so I can't I can't comment fairly on that one. Ooh, that's shocking. <laughs> you know, I would go, do you know what to go on about Battlestar Galactica being you know great because it was a it had a story arc and stuff like that. Yes. Well, Babylon Five did it first and also did it better. <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah. Um, you know, so like, um, and I've, I've got a friend who hates JMS, anything JMS does. Um, for me, uh, Babylon 5 is, you know, the best of JMS. It's so are, are they letting him do shows anymore? I don't know who they are. I mean, I think the last, last one I seen him, him do was Jeremiah, which, um, I don't know, it seemed, seemed to, uh, trudge along, um, yeah. at, at quite, quite slow, slow pace, but it was kind of like a, a post-apocalyptic thing where a virus had knocked out all the adult population. And, yes. you know, the, the first generation of adults was so like, uh, you know, going, going through this, um, through this world, I think it was Newt Perry that starred in that one. Probably. Yes, yeah, yeah, that was yeah. Of course, much more recent too. But yeah, Babylon Five. I think um, my recollections are very limited about it. Uh, I, I I was put off a bit by the special effects. I have to say um, that whole kind of CG look that was happening at that particular time um, didn't really appeal to me. I was kind of more of a a traditional model fan and uh, so that whole you know it, it just looked fake to me so I, I mean I know that has nothing to do with the quality of the stories or anything like that but um, but that was a factor that put me off of that series 
Yeah, I, you know, I'll admit I, um, I, I'm a fan of the, um, I'm a fan of models myself. Um, but I kind of got past it and quite enjoyed the stories and and the characters and and, and yes. whatnot. Uh, the first season was kind of ropey um, because they, they, you know, they they had a um, the, the the actor that was sort of like the main the, the main commander of the first season. You know, for me, he just didn't have as much charisma or as much, um, you know. It, I, I couldn't relate to him in the same way as I, I, I could to Bruce Botsnightner when he took over as a uh, Captain Sheridan in the series. Right. But um, you are you are right. The the the, um, the visuals and the spaceships did kind of look fake, but it, it kind of um, it kind of got be- gotten better as the uh, show progressed. Actually, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it ran for a number of years, so I would imagine that the technology would improve, and and you know that kind of thing would happen. Yeah. Um, but it's still, you know, still it's a good show. Um, you know, it's it's stands up well, and uh, it's funny because um, there's a campaign ongoing at the moment to try and get it back into syndication again. Yeah, you know, it should be. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of sci-fi shows that should be in syndication because we have channels for them. You know, in in uh, the United States, they have their their sci-fi channel. Uh, here in Canada, we have our space. Uh, the Imagination Station channel. Uh, I don't know what your equivalent is uh, over there, but, you know, these channels set out with a mandate to air science fiction programming, which they're largely not doing anymore. You know, they're, they're to a large extent, they're producing movies about sharks um, or airing reruns of shows that aren't science fiction. I mean, we have on our space channel, every single night of the week, they're rerunning Castle which is not science fiction. It, it stars Nathan Fillion, who was in Firefly. So, you know, there's a tangential connection to sci-fi there. But it's ridiculous that they're airing it every night of the week uh, in prime time. Mm-hmm. So, um, no, I think that there should, uh, there's a lot of fantastic classic sci-fi shows that they should be syndicating instead of uh, what they're airing on these channels right now. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think they should just have a night of syndicated television, you know? Yeah. It's like um, where, 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 where it's, um, you know, classic classic shows of years gone by. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, ours, you know, ours is a sci-fi channel here, and it's um, it's actually spelt the same way, Siffy, which um, is kind of like, uh, if you look in a med- medical dictionary, it's uh, kind of like an abbreviation for syphilis. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's pretty accurate so far. But I actually know the guy. You know when they, you know when they changed the name to Sci-Fi with S Y F Y. I actually right. know the guy that coined that, that 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 thing, and he used to he used to have a website called Sci-Fi Portal. Okay. Uh, which became Airlock Alpha, and he basically sold the SYFY to Sci-Fi Channel. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I, well, don't, I don't think he got as much for it, um, you know, as as he could have. Yeah. Well, of course, the reason that they did it um, was because they they couldn't copyright uh, the term Sci-Fi SCIFI, you know, because it's sort of a public domain kind of a thing. Um, in order to have like a, their company, the, like the, the Sci-Fi original programming. Um, I think they, I think they probably needed to come up with that other term, the SYFY. Um, I think that's part of the reason is, is actually in terms of how much profit they can generate for themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and um, and, and um, you know, so like, um, what's the least amount of money they can spend on, you know, on producing something? Ergo, reality TV shows. That's right, absolutely. Um, which seems um, to be what's going with modern existence. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Um, well, move, moving on to uh, you know what this uh, actual so, talk no. about um, the Space <laughs> Opera Society. Um, yes. uh, how long has it been going, and how how did you go about? You know, how did you become involved with it? Because uh, it's kind of like a, a novel new idea um, of you know from what I've read, it's a novel new idea of sort of like uh, a lot of people from from the realms of science fiction coming together and producing new original content. Um, which which uh, people people can you know that our fans can invest directly into. Yes, right, exactly. So we launched publicly on September thirteenth of this year. So really, only just a couple of weeks ago, uh, about three weeks ago, I guess. That was a Friday. Uh, it was Friday, September thirteenth. That's right. Uh, it was a uh, uh, you know if you remember your science fiction, uh, if you remember Space Nineteen Ninety Nine. That particular date, September 13th, was the date that the moon broke out of Earth orbit. Mm-hmm. So it had a you know a connection there, which made it an interesting date to, to select for our launch. Um, we have been working prior to that for about two years. Uh, initially, we were working on, and we still are working on, a sequel series to Space 1999, which is to be called Moonbase Alpha or Moonbase Alpha Legacy. And the team initially started coming together a couple of years ago to work on that. Uh, we began with pre-production artwork. Uh, our pre-production artist is Eric Chu, who did the designs for the new Battlestar Galactica. He designed the new Cylons and he designed the new um, Galactica itself. Um, and uh, so he's a fantastic artist. Um, we began working on new special effects. Uh, our special effects lead person is Wes Sargent, who, who did the effects for um, all, really all of the Stargate franchise of series. And um, we started working on character development, uh, story development. We have uh, now, a uh, couple of years afterwards, having done all of this, we have an incredible extensive series Bible. We have story outlines for an entire first season of episodes. We have a full complete script for a pilot, uh, feature length pilot episode. Um, So we've done a huge amount of work on the Moonbase Alpha Legacy project. And could I interject here a second? And uh, sorry, yes. Basically, Moonbase Alpha Legacy. uh, How I remember, I remember press release coming out probably about eighteen months. Two years ago, um, right. about a new Space 1999 show in progress, which was going to be called Space 2099. Is, yeah. that, is that the same thing? Or? No, no, it's not the same thing. Um, it's kind of a, a bit of a confusing history with Space 2099 because um, Space 2099 was initially a project that uh, Eric Bernard started. Eric Bernard being uh, our uh, producer, uh, team leader, everything to do with uh, Space Opera Society and Moonbase Alpha Legacy. And uh, initially, he had the term Space 2099, which he was using for a proposed uh, reworking of the original series, where he was going to re, you know, modernize the special effects and and do a little bit of editing here and there to um, to correct you know little bloopers and mistakes that might have been in the original series. And so he'd been working on that project for quite a while, and then and the, the fans were, you know, I think largely supportive. There's always people who don't want you to um, rework it, but you know, it, the original would have always remained, and uh, you know, uh, no one's taking that away. So it would be sort of the best of both worlds, I think, for everybody. Anyway, after a while, um, there was a fellow called uh, Jace Hall who 
is a Hollywood uh, uh, person who um, who uh, had produced at least at the beginning he produced the new V series, uh-huh. and uh, that's where you might know his name from. Um, Jace Hall managed to get uh, the rights from ITV, who owned the the rights to Space 1999, uh, he managed to negotiate the rights uh, for a, I'm not sure if the right word would be remake or reimagining, I think reimagining is the word that he used, uh, of Space 1999, which he was going to call Space 2099, and um, therefore, you know, confusion reigned because the fans already knew of another Space 2099 project. Anyway, uh, Jace Hall uh, launched his project. That's what you remember um, hearing about. He never publicly divulged uh, a terribly great amount of information about it. Um, Fans learned, uh, I think, gradually uh, a little bit more, and um, their suspicions were were, uh, certainly, if not uh, confirmed, their suspicions were never denied or or, uh, their suspicions were never erased. Yeah, because I um, I went after Jace Hall um, as soon as that was announced, trying to get an interview with him. Well, I've had a couple go-rounds with Jace Hall in person myself. Well, once in person, once on a chat room as well. I never got a reply from him. (laughs) I just wanted to do an interview with him. I never got a reply. (laughs) Well, you didn't. uh, I mean, you know, frankly, um, I don't think you missed much. Um, But, um, you know, he, he, I think, had a concept for a sci-fi series which um, I think that he saw an opportunity to um, use the Space 1999 name and have a built-in fan base, you know, kind of there from the beginning. And it, um, it really, unfortunately for him, uh, it didn't work out that way because the fans didn't like what he was suggesting he wanted to do with Space 1999. And so he appeared at a convention, a Space 1999 convention in uh, Los Angeles, uh, which had a lot of the original cast and, and, and writers and people like that in attendance. And Jace Hall appeared and um, met with a pretty resoundingly negative reaction from from uh, the ballroom full of fans that was attended there, uh, in attendance there. And, um, uh, you know, I don't think we heard very much from him after that. And um, I think maybe ITV saw that they were on to uh, a bit of a loser there uh, with regards to what he wanted to do with the show. Mm-hmm. And that the fans certainly were not behind it. And, you you know, if, if you if you wanted to reboot a franchise, relaunch a franchise, continue a franchise, or do anything with a franchise that has an existing fan base, you really have to be at least considerate and respectful of that fan base. Exactly. You know, you know uh, I think if you I think if you start out by pissing them off, then you're on the wrong tangent altogether. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, I, I've often, you know, I've often thought about this since the fact that, you know, uh, sci-fi missed out an opportunity of continuing the uh, Battlestar Galactica story, you know, 10, 20, year, 20 years after the original. Uh, it would have been 30 years after the original, I think, or thereabouts, or 25. Um, I've often wondered what what, what, what would have happened with the uh, Space 1999 crew, you know, would, would any of the uh, original... Uh, people to be lost uh, be sticking <laughs> exactly. around and that's that's what we wonder that's what uh, Space Night the Nine fans have always wondered um, is where are they now you know what's what's happened to the Alphans and so that's what we're setting about doing with Moonbase Alpha uh, Moonbase Alpha Legacy is telling you showing you mm-hmm. where the Alphans ended up and what ended up happening to them and you know of course um, we in our videos uh, on online on our website we're 
we're giving pieces of information. We're showing, uh, we've released photos of a, of a new spaceship that Martin Bauer has designed and built for us, um, uh, which is called the Vulture. Um, we have uh, an amazing video that we've got online about with, with footage of the new CGI Moonbase Alpha. Um, we, as I say, we have a full script for the pilot. We are postulating this series as being a sequel series to Space 1999, wherein you pick up the story a certain amount of years later, and, uh, you know, presumably, uh, you have uh, some original people there, and you have a bunch of new people there. And, uh, you know, I can't say too much about how the story gets going again, but, you know, the story gets going again. Um, we've got, you've got a lot of great people in, involved in the Space Opera Society, and, um, and, and I was looking at the website earlier on, and um, I noticed there's several other projects that are actually uh, in various stages of development. Yes, well, um, with regards to the, the people who are involved in the Space Opera Society, uh, I've already mentioned, of course, um, effects and design people like uh, Wes Sargent and Eric Chu. Um, and uh, of course our model makers Martin Bauer mentioned him um, we have our story consultant is Christopher Penfold who did the original script editing for Space 1989 wrote a lot of the original episodes and uh, more recently of course you would know him as the uh, script editor for Midsummer Murders uh, so Christopher Penfold is a terrific talent that we have on our team we have actors people like Nick Tate from Space 1989 on our team and, and Kevin Sorbo and and Armin Shimmerman and uh, Michelle Specht from Star Trek Continues. We have a lot of uh, really fun, really great, amazing talents on board. So that's a very exciting aspect of it. We have script writers as well who did episodes of Star Trek uh, Voyager, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and um, it's a really diverse, amazing team that's been brought together uh, because we all really believe in science fiction. We all love science fiction. And we all want to work on hopefully creating new science fiction. And that's why the Space Opera Society was created, um, so that we can hopefully all do that. And it is an innovative structure, really, for a company like this. It's being done as a nonprofit organization, which means that at the end of the year, people who've contributed money to it will see our public financial report and will know exactly where their money went. Mm -hmm. uh, which I think is unheard of, you know, as a degree of transparency in a in a film production company. I think it's pretty amazing. And obviously, if you uh, if you actually take stuff to you know VOD formats or DVD, and you know, and, and actually sell them on, those sales will go straight back into producing other projects. Right? Absolutely, all all profits are uh, rotated back into producing more shows. Mm -hmm. And you know, obviously, the talent involved is when shows are in production is the talent is going to get paid. The actors will get paid and the director gets paid and the lighting cameraman gets paid and, you know, all of that. But yeah, any, any profits are generated above and beyond from the shows themselves, from uh, DVD sales, from merchandise sales, from, you know, any of those things, all of the profit goes back to funding and creating more of the programs that viewers want to see instead of going into network executives pockets. 
you know, which is the standard business model. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, looking, looking at some of the other series, you know, I've noticed you got uh, these hour dramas as well as half-hour comedies and half-hour dramas. So. We do, we do. You know, I think space opera is such a diverse potential uh, as a genre. You know, so we do have series in development. We have um, comedies, space comedies. We have uh, space horror. We have space drama. There's... Uh, there's a dramatic series called The Rock, which is set on an asteroid prison. Um, there's a comedy called um, called Starlight, which has uh, some people who've been abducted by a UFO. Um, there's another comedy uh, called um, called uh, Royce Banyan and the MJ12 Index. Which is a, a sort of a X Files meets Galaxy Quest, I think, if I, I, I could put it that way. Um, there's a space horror called The Terror Formers, uh, which is set on Mars. Um, so yeah, so we have a really diverse slate of, of series that are in development at various stages. Um, two of them are in the scripting phase right now. Um, one of them, the the pilot script, I think, is finished. Um, other ones, the the story treatments are done, but the actual script is not done so you know and we've got production designs being done and all that kind of thing so they're all at different levels of development um and and to date you know all the work that we've done for our original series uh, that we're creating and for movie self a legacy everything has been done completely out of love uh nobody's you know we haven't been paid for you know i haven't been paid for anything that i've done um i've contributed money to the space opera society because i believe in it and i believe in what we are trying to do yeah it's like um i know she uses in Indiegogo why, why did you choose Indiegogo perhaps over Kickstarter because I think Kickstarter is the biggest of the two it is it is it, and, and any future campaigns that we do I believe will be on Kickstarter uh, the reason that we chose Indiegogo, uh, and uh, there's really a couple of reasons, but but one of the reasons is because Indigo, uh, Kickstarter does not allow for a upstart production company. Uh, it, it, it allows you to do funding on Kickstarter if you have a specific project that you're fundraising for. In our case, we were fundraising for an umbrella, you know, organization with multiple projects. And so that's actually not allowed uh, by Kickstarter. Uh, so that was really the the biggest reason, I think, why we went with Indiegogo, which is the second biggest uh, crowdfunding platform uh, in the world. And um, and it, it functions exactly the same, you know, in reality. For people to go look at the website, Indiegogo looks a lot like Kickstarter and, and functions the same way and has different levels of contribution. We, we have a, a contribution levels anywhere from literally $1 mm-hmm. uh, on up to 20000 so and everywhere in between so and with different benefits uh that people get for their contribution so it, it really functions the same as kickstarter yeah I, well, i'm pretty chuffed at the moment because um i give this quick mention because you probably um uh, you probably quite enjoy this as well um but i uh recently uh you know pledged a fair bit of money to um well not a fair bit it was a modest amount to a uh, kickstarter campaign for you know to to have jerry anderson's final book <laughs> um, i know gemini Gemini Force One. Yeah. I, I contributed to it as well, <laughs> um, and I I, I, I I couldn't contribute very much because I'm I'm unlimited means. But I I, uh, I contributed That's twenty five. It doesn't matter, Ian, if you if you are able to give a lot or a little. What matters is that you give something, and even if it's literally just that one dollar or that one pound um, or you know ten pounds or, or whatever, I think 
you know, I didn't give a lot either. Um, I, I think that I might have chipped in for 35 pounds or something like that. It's not a lot, but it was something. And I just wanted to be able to help show my support for what Jamie Anderson is doing and, and trying to carry on his father's legacy. And um, Gemini Force One sounds like a really fun, classic Anderson concept. And and there isn't enough of that in the world right now. You know? Yeah, no, I mean, everything seems to be so dark and every, every sort of like um, police procedural on, on TV yeah. they're all wearing bloody suits and you know well like, like in Battlestar Galactica they were all wearing the new Galactica they were all wearing suits and ties and eyeglasses and they had Hummers in that you know and, and um, it was dreary and dark and depressing and there were no heroes you know every person on that show was so tragically deeply flawed uh, that it was a depressing exercise in, in, in viewing I think where are the heroes? You know, where where is the optimism and the looking forward to something in the future? Uh, and, and of course, that's what Anderson always did. You know, they were always heroes in his shows. So it's nice that that Jamie Anderson is working to to carry on that that um, that legacy of his father's. Mm-hmm. Well, I donated twenty five pounds to the cause uh, because I really wanted a cop- I really wanted a paperback copy of that book. So. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I just want to see it happen. I want. I want to see. And, I want and they did. They did terrifically well with their campaign. Um, they. I, I don't know the exact numbers, of course, but I think that they were they were close to about fifty percent over their target for funding. So they 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 unlocked their stretch goals, and uh, it was a great success. I, I just think it's a really cool idea. Uh, what what you guys are doing with Space Opera Society, and um, you know, ho- hopefully, uh, once again. A bit more money coming in, I can sort of pledge to help help you guys out as well. Well, thank you. Yeah, you know, and, and that's exactly it. You know, it uh, it's it's really for anybody who loves or has loved space opera, sci-fi um, in the past, and would like to see it again. And there there isn't any today. Um, not even not even shows that we don't like. There just aren't any on television right now. So we would like to be able to produce some. And you know, the the crowdfunding format. People people initially, I think, look at it and have a little bit of doubt in their mind as to you know, can you really do that? Can you you know, can you fund a show with uh, crowdfunding? You can. I mean, you have to only look as far as a recent show like Firefly. Which the the rating numbers on Firefly, of course, were not good enough for the network to continue with it. They weren't making enough money. But I don't know how many people were watching Firefly. Three million, maybe? Uh, If you have three million people around the world giving a dollar or 50 cents you're able to produce episodes of that show. Mm-hmm. You know, if people gave 50 cents, you know, if you have, you know, I mean, a million people giving a mil- giving $1 each, you've got a million dollars, you're able to produce another episode of a series. Uh, and for on a per capita basis, it's really a tiny amount of money that people would ever have to give in order to have a show like that. Firefly would still be in production if it were done in a crowdfunded way. So yeah, people can contribute, even if they just contribute a dollar, if they contribute five or a hundred or whatever they can afford, but even literally just one dollar is enough to make it happen. And people, people, um, people can go and they can look at our website, read all about all the people who are involved in our team. They can watch the videos that we have, uh, which show the kinds of special effects that West Sargent is, is able to do. 
uh, shows interviews with some of the actors who are on board with us, some of the writers, um, and they can learn all about us, everything about the nonprofit uh, structure, um, about, as you said, as you commented on, about the individual shows that we're developing. And uh, after doing all of that, I think that people will, will really see that it's a really exciting concept, the, the Space Opera Society and everything that we can do. There's a phenomenal promise there. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's very doable and, and realizable if people buy into the dream with us. As a, as a writer yourself, because you, you've, written, you've, you've written quite a bit, but mo- mostly I uh, think I know you best for, because I, I've only recently read up on this, is Destination Moonbase Alpha. That's why I know you best for. And I've got your website right. up right here, right now. <laughs> oh. um, uh, my, my, um, the Destination Moonbase Alpha website? Yep. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it was, a, um, it was a, a, a fantastic book. It was a culmination of my my lifetime love of Space 1999, and I have been really, really blessed and overwhelmed by the response that it received from fans of the show. Uh, if, if you look on my website, there's a, a page of fan reviews, which which is um, the kind of glowing reviews that you can only ever dream of getting. Mm-hmm. So, so have you won a Hugo yet? No, I haven't. Not yet. <laughs> Damn! <laughs> <laughs> um, um, I mean, Maybe um, next time you interview me, you never know. What, what I was going to ask you is, um, um, as a writer yourself, have you have you um, played a hand in any of the um, any of the shows that are in development? Um, yes, obviously, absolutely. obviously, absolutely. I, sh- I should imagine you're involved in in the Moonbase Alpha continuation. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, I'll talk about that one first. Uh, yeah, the the pilot. I've been very involved in the Moonbase Alpha continuation um, in all facets and. Specifically in terms of writing, that's what you're asking me about. Um, I've co-written the pilot uh, along with Steve Warneck. Steve Warneck uh, wrote an episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And he and I have co-written the pilot for Moonbase Alpha Legacy. And um, we've been extremely pleased with the response we've received from uh, other members of our team. And uh, specifically uh, from Christopher Penfold, who, as I mentioned, is the original script editor of Space 1999 Year One and writer of many of the original episodes. And um, Christopher's reaction uh, has been wonderful, glowing. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm really thrilled about that. So yeah, um, working on that, Moonbase Alpha Legacy. But then also in terms of the original series that we're developing, uh, there are several of them that I have co-created uh, with Steve Warneck. We, we work really well together. So, you know, kind of how that happens with a team where you have kind of natural uh, people who gravitate to each other in terms of um, their, their, um, their process, their method mm-hmm. of work. And so Steve and I have, have um, gelled in that sense uh, of, of working very, very well together, writing very well together. And so we co-created uh, several of these new concepts for series. Uh, Royce Banyan and the MJ-12 Index, that's one of ours. The Rock is one of ours. And another one called Conquest of the Stars is one of ours. That one is kind of, uh, it's in the vein of um, Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon. Oh, cool. uh, that, that That kind of a show. Um, I love Buck so Rogers. At the, moment, at the moment, Steve and I are are, uh, working on uh, consecutively, we're working on writing two scripts 
for pilot scripts for two of our original series. Yes. Very cool. It, it's funny uh, when, when you talk about Space 1999. Uh, um, I, you know, Wright's friend and I, a couple of years back, and we didn't do it because we didn't know who had the rights um, to, to Space 1999. But we, we, had, we hit on this uh, idea, which looking back, um, you know, it was probably a good idea, but what we were, what we were doing with it wasn't probably that great because it was sort of a little bit too... Uh, you know, I I just felt it was a little bit too childish. Although this friend of mine would probably disagree with me, <laughs> but we, we had this notion of a prequel series um, of sorts um, about Maya and oh, right. what her world and society was like prior to it breaking down. Yes. Um, yeah, Psycon, absolutely. That would be a fascinating thing. It's, I, I'm sure this is the kind of thing that might have been explored, uh, probably has been explored to a degree in fan fiction over the years. Um, the Space has had a lot of fan fiction uh, writers over the years. And uh, so Maya, Maya's uh, background on Psycon um, her family, that sort of thing, is, and their culture, I'm sure, has probably all been explored. But it would make an amazing series. It would be really fascinating to explore uh, an alien culture in that way. Well, um, what, what we came up with, um, you know, we, we saw, like, um, I, I think, you know, Will, who was the guy I was working with on it, he was thinking about doing something which was more of a fun show, um, you know, aimed, aimed at the younger kids, but maybe the older kids could watch as well. And, you know, we came up with, you know, these, uh, you know, this idea, this notion that Maya was kind of like a rebellious teenager or, or whatever, who, who took off in her zit ship whenever she wanted to. And the zit ship was my idea. You know, I just came up with the zit ship because I like, uh, you know, uh, because obviously I didn't explain it. You know what a zit is, right? Yes. You know, yes. A, you know, a spot or a pimple. And yes. um, in, in, you know, in modern society and, you know, we dwell. These images of beauty we're bombarded with. Everything's flawless. There's no, there's no character or no, no right. or stuff like that. So I just kind of like took the pic, took the Mickey out of that a little bit, and thought, hmm, well, she's probably got a zit chip. <laughs> so joke, joking around, but. In, in the end, we never really did anything with it. Yeah. Well, there you go again. I mean, it's the kind of concept you're talking about, something that appeals to a younger audience there specifically. And, you know, really, we were talking about Jerry Anderson Productions, and a lot of them appealed to a younger audience, uh, and uh, an older audience as well. But they certainly were, were often geared to a younger audience. And um, there isn't a lot of that in science fiction these days either. So there's definitely a place for it. Definitely a place for it. The rights holders to Space 1989 are, um, yeah, I a company called ITV, uh, which you know well in the UK. Yeah, I, I, I had a feeling at the time it was ITV, but I, I wasn't sure how we could have approached them or anything like that. And, uh, and to be honest, I didn't. Ha- I, I wouldn't have had the income to manage it, and uh, I don't. You know, I don't think. Uh, I don't think the other person would have either. To be honest, right. Right. Well, you know, in our in our case with Moonbase Alpha Legacy, um, we're we're in an early stage of um, of, of the development. Um, we've put a lot of love and effort and work into it. If you were to cost out what we've already done, it would probably cost you know ITV. Um, probably about a hundred thousand dollars to do what we've already done mm-hmm. in terms of the scripting, the, the design, the effects, development, uh, character development, all of these things that we've done um, in pre-production terms. It would it would cost them a significant amount of money to do what we've already done, and we have a concept which is, I think, by and large, um, exactly what fandom wants what Space 1989 fandom wants uh, to see in a, in a sequel series. 
So, and I say that being, you know, a lifelong fan, I, I, I and, and having spoken with a lot of fans that I know, um, I think I can say that fairly safely, that we are on the right track of what fans want uh, to see. So, you know, uh, hopefully ITV is um, casting an eye towards what we're doing and um, may want to uh, join us. <laughs> well, you know, fing- fingers crossed that um, a sequel to Space 1999 actually happens, you know, because it's it's something that I'd be interested in seeing. So I've got fond memories of, uh, of watching the show when I was a kid. Yes. Um, I've watched a handful since, but um, it just seem just doesn't seem to have dated very well for me. Um, uh, since, but. Well, I think it depends on what shows you watch. I mean, I think predominantly for adults, um, they find that year one it, uh, really has aged a lot better than year two has um, for an adult audience. the The storytelling uh, is 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 darker. Uh, it's more introspective. Um, the you know it's, it. it it really encapsulated a lot about what the downfall of modern man was all about. Mm-hmm. Throwing a, a group of people out into space, lost, careening around the universe out of control, and not having a grip on their destiny, not knowing where they were going. And there's a lot of parables there to to our own lives, you know, and, and our own life on Earth. Um, where if you think about it, we, we, we are kind of uh, a little bit out of control, uh, just like Moonbase Alpha was. So there's a lot of adult stuff there. There's a lot of horror elements in year one of Space 99. There are episodes that are, you know, really tense, very suspenseful, very, you know, scary. Um, there's a lot of, a lot of thoughtful social kind of commentary that happens in some of the episodes. And, um, yeah, I mean, you think, I think you have to get past the flares, uh, the bell bottoms and, um, you know, but, but really a lot of the acting is great. I mean, you've got fantastic people in the cast like Martin Landau and Barbara Bain and Barry Morse, mm-hmm. uh, of course in the lead roles and Nick, you know, the special, the special effects are a lot of the special effects hold up really, really well to this day. I mean, occasionally, you know, you, you see through the effects, but, but a lot of them are really amazing to this day. And uh, so, yeah, I think on a storytelling level too, though, I, I really do recommend Year One of Space Enter the Nine for people to re- revisit. Um, if it hasn't been seen for a long time, you know, start with Breakaway and, and go through it. Use my, If you've got my book, uh, you can use it as a bit of a guide for you as well. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think, I think the episodes that I've I seen in reruns were probably Year Two uh, because Maya was in there and, you know. Yeah. And, and Year Two has some really good episodes. It's, it's a lot of fun. And it was geared, you know, it was completely revamped. It was geared to a different, um, a, a different audience. And the storytelling was dramatically different than year one. It, it's a very fun show. Mm-hmm. And there are some really good episodes in it. I think uh, on the whole, uh, you know, very few people would disagree that year one is superior. Um, but uh, year two is a fun show and Maya is a fun character. And when, when people think about what they remember of Space 1989, one of the first things that comes to mind is absolutely Maya. She was an incredibly memorable character. And Catherine Schell is a great actress and, and played her with such charm and uh, and warmth. You know, you really did love that character. And, and also, I think, wasn't she like one of the first uh, changing characters to feature on television? Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think in terms of science fiction television, um, I'm not aware of any before her. 
uh, certainly not ongoing regular characters. There might have been a character who had been a guest appearance in Star Trek or something. I'm not, I'm not really sure about that. Uh, Odo came afterward in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And, um, but yeah, Maya really broke ground in terms of live action science fiction. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I, th- I think, um, we, you know, it's time to uh, wrap this thing up. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add before we do? Uh, I would just like to thank you, Ian, for having me on the show and for letting me talk about uh, science fiction, which I love. It's always fun to talk about. Um, for letting me talk about the Space Opera Society, which I believe in and love. And I hope that people will go to our website, which is, of course, spaceoperasociety.com, and learn more about us. And then once you do, maybe you'll see fit to contribute that dollar or, you know, 20000 you know, whatever you've got hanging around on the bedside table, um, and help us to be able to create outer space adventures that we would all like to watch. Yeah, and, um, you know, I, I'll, definitely, I'll definitely drink to that. Cheers. <laughs> on the new audio adventures of Star Trek, The Continuing Mission. I know who you are. You're Captain Paul Edwards. Why am I sitting here with you? You have something better to do tonight? I don't know what you hope to accomplish by following the Doctor around Managua all night. Don't you think sneaking around like that is a little undignified? You know, this stuff isn't half bad once you get used to it. A little plain, isn't it? Plain? That's my mother's own recipe. That building is a brothel. I think we both know what he's doing in there. Why don't you just stay here tonight? And if you want to, you can take one of these old birds up in the air in the morning. I didn't know you two were fond of Nicaragua. Oh, yes. Fond. Very fond. I can't feel my head. I would say your Bushmills does an adequate job. Aye, that it does, Miss Mitukov. <laughs> Nothing like a night in Managua. I don't know why I let you talk me into this. Don't bruise the cheese ball. Right, 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 right. Only on the new audio adventures of Star Trek. The Continuing Mission at ContinuingMission.com. This is Mark Wade. Hi, this is Amanda Tapping. Hello, I'm Steve Pugh. And you can catch them all right here on SFP Now. And that's about it for, for, for this week. Um, next week we have uh, an interview with the um, ladies from 616 Productions, uh, which is a, a production company that has uh, you know, had, had quite a bit of recent success with a, a web series called Syndicate, which is about two serial killers that sort of wind up stalking each other. It's a really interesting and fascinating series to watch, and it's really worth uh, checking out. Um, and you, you can find that on Coldcast. Uh, but then 
they, they're, they're talking they're also talking to me about a new production that they have in the works uh, which is actually called 616 um, and it's kind of like a unique uh, horror story that they're, they're developing so we'll be talking with those guys next week about that and we got we got quite quite a few things going in October we have the uh, the, the Halloween special um coming up with myself t sean hardy and his wife linda and we kind of missed we kind of missed our top 10 monsters so we have that coming up in the uh, in the next couple of weeks and uh, that's gonna be um that's gonna be a bit of a two-hour marathon actually but um i think you know if you if you appreciate um our, you know our, our rather twisted and uh, depraved sense of humor you'll probably enjoy the uh, the halloween special that we have in the works and um hopefully we'll be back um, every week with more interviews um we, we we do have things in the works so stick with us and don't forget to tune in for genre tainment um which is you know on a tuesday and i know that Marx has quite a lot of good stuff coming up um they were at recently at the uh the, the sci-fi uh press tour which was held in canada and um i think they picked up um, a little bit of audio uh, material uh, from there which they'll probably be running out in genretainment and um, we might even get a little bit of it on, on here, we've just not looked at the situation yet. So that's it for this week and we'll be back at you next week uh, thanks for listening We offer the world order